Politics and Culture Without the Red and Blue Treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the brain. Michelle, a lot of little stories. Yes. And then some pretty important, impactful big ones. ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where do you even want to begin? Uh, We should probably begin with, um, well... A quick, quick overview of politics. There were some important, impactful debates last night. Mm -hmm. John Fetterman versus Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. Um, Tough to watch for a lot of reasons. Awful. Yeah. Just awful. I streamed it on thehill.com. It was available in a bunch of different places, but uh, but this was this was rough to get through. John Fetterman. uh, John Fetterman's uh, uh, stroke after effects were on full display, and his staff in advance of the debate tried to dampen expectations. They didn't do a good enough job because the poor guy was just flailing around. Um, Nonsensical sentences. um, Just, it it was awful. You know, I've had people in my family, most Americans have had people in their family who have suffered from strokes. Yeah. And uh, the recovery is is just awful. And sometimes it's not possible to recover. He's recovering. Yeah. But he was not, Anywhere near 100% last night. Yeah, and having to do it in public yeah. is a really... Awful. Uh, yeah, it's it's a tough situation to be in. Uh, and one that he chose yes. also. He did, he um, chose. Yeah, and also it would be really frustrating if indeed what his doctor says is true, that there's not a cognitive problem, there's a language processing problem. That's it must right. be pretty hard to stand up on that stage yeah. and know that you are fumbling things yeah. that you really care about. But also, you know... Uh, the state of trust between the American people and almost any politician is such that it is hard to believe sometimes what people say about their health, what comes out about their health from their own camp. Yes. And and uh, witnessing this doesn't help his case, regardless of, you know, what is going on. Right. It's sad. It was sad. Also sad to see Met Met Oz say a decision on having an abortion should be between a woman, her doctor, and local elected officials or local authorities. Can you imagine? Get out of here. God, what a snake. What an idiot. Yeah. 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 Yeah, He said it because he believes it. Yeah. There was another debate last night, too, that didn't get so much uh, airplay. Well, sorry, you think he believes that? He's just saying that because he's going to, you think he cares about abortion? I think he's just I, I saying he cares that because that's the only party line. Because the Republican yeah. Party wants him exactly. to care about abortion. Exactly. So he was spouting believe. the line. Who, God knows what yeah. he believes. Although he just said the part that you're supposed to like keep to yourself. He said it out loud. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Matt. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about that later in the show. Yes. Uh, we should do a show preview. We're going to talk a little bit about the uh, peace talks that do finally appear to be underway in South Africa with yep. regard to the conflict in Ethiopia. A very Not potentially a positive development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we are going to take a look at some strike actions that might be coming in France and what those implications will be. Uh, we're going to talk a whole lot of politics later on. Uh, we're also going to talk about um, tracking abuse in native communities and uh, yes. what the Catholic Church has done and not done to actually rectify those past wrongs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also going to get into another area. We we talked in the past about New York State squeezing tribal nations mm-hmm. uh, for tax revenue on gambling that was supposed to be sort of their exclusive right that is now just the state skimming. Um, tribes are now ahead of the state when it comes to selling marijuana. Yes. Um, and so far, the state has taken a really hands-off approach there to it. But how long 
you know, again, how long any nation is going to be allowed to make money without the state coming in and saying, we're going to need we're going to need a percentage of that. And we're not going to be consistent about what that is and what your requirements are. Uh, we'll see how long that is. You know, I think I've mentioned previously on the show that when I was in prison, there were a lot of Native Americans and they were almost all from New York State, upstate New York. And almost all of them were in prison for selling cigarettes across the Canadian border without paying the state taxes. It's all about uh, it's all about tax revenue for the state when it comes to the Native nations. Yeah, exactly. We're having some serious problems on Rumble again. And so uh, I wanted to tell our listeners, if if Rumble keeps freezing for you, and it's freezing for me, it's better to go to the Sputnik News website and access the show there. Yeah. Because the Sputnik News website hasn't had any of these um, feed issues. So if if Rumble's not working, and again, I'm watching myself right now, and I'm seeing it's not really working very well, go to Sputnik News. You look so much better in person, John. Is that what you're trying to say? No, <laughs> no. at all. It's Not amazing. at all. Um, I also, and I know we're going to talk about this more later, but uh, it, the show was just ending yesterday. Yes. When the Progressive Caucus formally withdrew that letter. And the <laughs> mud is still flying. It's right? bad. This is an embarrassment for the Democratic uh, totally Party Totally unclear House. whether, uh, I mean, in the initial accusation was that the letter had been sent out unvetted by staff. Nobody right. knew about it. Uh, most people went, this is Pramila Jayapal trying to throw her staff under the bus. You had other members who had signed the letter come out and say, the staff is great. I think that was Rokana. Um, now you have people saying their sources are telling them that uh, Jayapal approved the release of the letter herself. So it's just made, it just made a, a really ugly incident even uglier, mm -hmm. right? You can't just be feckless when it comes to your principles here and when to negotiate and when not to negotiate. You also just can't tell a straight story about how that letter came came out, or at least you and your office can't come to a straight story about it. And it's just makes the, them look terrible. It, it really, really does. makes it's them look terrible. And what I don't like at all is the fact that we don't know why this thing was withdrawn. Was it because of pressure from the White House or pressure from Nancy Pelosi? Were threats made? Were there threats to to uh, their committee assignments or to future legislation? What's the background to this? Yeah. Because calling for diplomacy, you know, in a in a conflict that could escalate to the point of catastrophe is a good thing. Yeah. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, so, considering we've ha we have, uh, you know, as we discussed already, right, that NATO has done its nuclear exercises. Yes. I forget their dumb name. Uh, Russia yesterday ordered their, you know, its own nuclear drills. These are right. not things that don't happen, right? These two entities do nuclear drills periodically like any other military drill. But the fact that they're doing them head to head, you know, yeah. like we should pay it. It, it is a time for negotiation, I feel. Uh, it it has been. Definitely. It has been for some time. Uh, oh, I'd like to say we're going to talk about this in Ethiopia, but... Uh, Incredibly rich to me that Antony Blinken on Sunday, according to him, was on the phone with uh, the president of Kenya and the foreign minister of South Africa uh, offering his advice on how to ensure a good outcome of these oh. AU peace talks between Tigray and Ethiopia. Like, yeah, what's your track record on successful uh, negotiations here wow. of avoiding conflict through negotiation, Antony Blinken? Maybe let them figure it out. Yeah. Just, you know, I mean, honestly, what is, yeah. Wow. These guys. Incredible.
All right, John, you want to talk about European politics? Or do you want to talk about the U.S. health insurance industry? Let's do European politics first. Go for it. You Lay know, it on me. There's, there's a lot going on in France that, that many in the U.S. media aren't paying very close attention to. Uh, first, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, is supposed to have lunch today with the chancellor of Germany. I guess by now has had lunch with the chancellor of Germany, uh, Olaf Scholz. The two are um, at odds, let's mm-hmm. say. The Germans are usually seen as the first among equals among, among members of the European Union. Mm-hmm. That's just not the case with Schultz. He's the head of a three-party, a weak three-party coalition. He just doesn't have the authority that previous chancellors have had. He was embarrassed recently in Hungary when he went to visit Viktor Orban and Orban wouldn't even allow him the courtesy of a press conference afterwards. That's this seen, is what Macron is threatening to exactly do. That's what exactly Macron's what Macron is doing. Yeah, and maybe has done. I yes. didn't see if there was a press conference. I, I checked right before we came in here, and uh, there wasn't any news about it. So now we're seeing the same thing from Macron. Uh, and I'm I'm wondering what is at the core of this issue. We see that that they disagree on a whole bunch of things, like Ukraine aid, for example. Mm-hmm policy to combat um, inflation, these energy shortages that both countries are expecting over the next several months, even relations with China. Now, I was fascinated by this. Schultz was only supposed to stop in France for for three hours. They were going to have a quick lunch, talk about their differences, do a press conference, and he was going to fly to Athens for a state visit, and then from Athens to Beijing. Well, in Beijing, Schultz would be, will be, the first uh, foreign head of state to meet with Xi Jinping since the the weekend conference or the conference in China ended over the weekend. Well, somehow Macron doesn't like this, yeah. and um, and is saying that this is a problem. That it, it, the the language was hilarious to me. Macron said that this visit would legitimize Xi. Uh, he's well, hello, the third term. <laughs> he's the he's the president. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, this language of legitimizing is so, I mean, it's condescending as well. Oh, boy, is it? Who the hell are you, France, to legitimize the, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can like him or not, but uh, he he, he has been in power for some time. You have been happy to deal with him in the past, it seems like. And we're talking about a nation of a billion people. Mm -hmm. Pipe down, France. Seriously. Yeah. I I don't get that. I think a lot of this is Schultz... uh, You know, Germany has been getting scolded across the board for supposedly dragging its feet on getting into this conflict in Europe. Uh, I think that has been pretty unfair. Germany is getting the blame in some quarters Mm -hmm. for uh, creating an economy that was too reliant on Russian energy. Yes. And now the talking point is that, well, it's going to be out of the frying pan into the fire with China. Right. But also, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Exactly. Where are you going to go? It's not China. I mean, sure. Okay, exactly. Switch, uh, completely reorient yourself to the United oh. States, but they don't want to do that no, either. They At don't. least on paper, they don't want to do That's that. Right. You know? And then when you go hat in hand to you know Egypt mm-hmm. and ask for their natural gas, you know things are, yeah. are in the tank. I have some sympathy for, for Schultz here. Um, yeah, I mean, he's just, he's trying to manage a situation that he's landed himself in. Yep. I agree. One other issue um, that I wanted to raise is the annual um, ministerial meeting of the IAEA, that's the International Atomic Energy Agency, is being held in Washington today, tomorrow, and Friday. But in violation of the IAEA's charter, the U.S. has refused to grant entry visas to the Russian representatives. 
So they're they're not coming to the meeting physically. They're gonna they're gonna sort of Skype in or Zoom in or whatever. Um, but uh, this is the first time this has happened. The whole point of the IAEA is to help to avoid nuclear incidents and nuclear accidents and to help control the the development of nuclear weapons and nuclear power, et cetera, et cetera. Just arbitrarily not providing visas for not just members, but senior members yeah. uh, of the IAEA is just not acceptable. It reminds me very much of what the United States used to do to Yasser Arafat every year before the UN General Assembly. There was always this drama every August. Is Arafat going to get a visa? Well, you know what? The UN Charter says you have to give him a visa. Yeah. And half the time we wouldn't, and he wouldn't be able to come. There would be some lower level Palestinian official. That's what this reminds me of. I don't understand, John. It's almost like you're saying the U.S. uh, throws its weight around in ways that are (laughs) illegal and that we would condemn if if done by other nations. Oh, right. Can you imagine if there were an IAEA uh, meeting somewhere else and the United States wasn't allowed to attend because uh, we couldn't get visas. We would honestly, there would be opinion pieces saying, uh, yes, we should go to war over yeah, IAEA visas. Of course. There's somebody out there of would course. have an opinion piece in the Boston Globe or something saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. Weird how these institutions always seem to serve the interests of their most uh, powerful members. Strange. That's what happens. Yeah. Hey, do you want a quick update on a on a topic that we were getting into yesterday uh, before we bring on our first guest? Uh, we were talking about Initiative 77, right? The the ballot proposal that would require restaurants to pay yes, their tips staff a minimum wage. Um, so uh, one of the arguments against this initiative is uh, that restaurants are by law supposed to make up whatever gap there is between the sub-minimum wage they pay their staff and the tips they earn, right? So if you're making $3 an hour and you earn another uh, $6 an hour in tips, that doesn't bring you to the minimum wage of $16. And so the restaurant is supposed to add that $5 onto your onto your uh, paycheck. Um, Ryan O'Leary, who we spoke to yesterday, who's one of the proponents of this measure, uh, actually, I think, did a FOIA request to find out what find out how restaurants are actually complying or not complying with this requirement because for him after the council overturned the previous initiative they passed a law requiring restaurants to report the earnings of their tipped employees right so they could check 89% of restaurants are not compliant 89% yeah uh, only 11% of restaurants have submitted reports for the past four quarters 64% have never reported at all and what would you know a bunch of restaurants owned by Jose Andres? Oh, he's got to be the worst defender of them all. most beloved chef yep. uh, have have never submitted a report. They yeah. didn't even bother to submit a report. No, because it's not a real thing and it's not really enforced. It's very complicated how they would even need to do it. Uh, employee. It, the onus would be on employees to have to look at their paychecks to figure out if they're doing it. The onus would be on them to then go to their bosses and say, hey, I think you made a mistake and you should be paying me more money. And then would you, you know, then you get fired or you go to some, you know, D.C. administrative body and uh, good luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it wow. depends on who you hit and what body you hit. So, yeah, I just wanted to follow up on that because it, you know. Again, not a thing I had ever experienced in all my time in the service industry, and apparently not a thing a lot of people are experiencing, or at least that the restaurants that they work at uh, don't intend to share their work when it comes to whether they are making these calculations. 
Uh, I have quite a lot of thoughts on an NPR story about our uh, absolutely upside down uh, and dismal health insurance system. But I think we can get to them after this first conversation. Let's let's fly to Europe. Yeah. We'll take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. You're listening to us on Radio Sputnik or on Rumble or on the Sputnik Radio website, guys. (laughs) Try all those. Uh, We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with Michelle Witte. We're going to be joined now by our colleague, friend, Sputnik News journalist and analyst, Wyatt Reed, who is in Paris. There is a lot going on in Paris. We mentioned just a few minutes ago this, uh, I like the word kerfuffle. Yeah. This is a kerfuffle between the French and the Germans. Uh, We can talk about that uh, later at uh, more length. But uh, Wyatt is watching something taking place in France right now that um, could have a real economic impact. Uh, There's an enormous labor union that cuts across industries called um, CGT. And CGT is uh, planning a strike tomorrow, a major strike. And we don't know if this is going to be a general strike or not. It appears at this point that it's not going to be a general strike, but it's going to disrupt daily life in France, at least for tomorrow. And... I feel like we should, the context of this is daily life that is already disrupted. That's already disrupted. Yeah. That's right. By strikes. By strikes. You know, people in France and Germany and Greece and the United States are upset about the, their economies, uh, especially going into this winter. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that with, uh, with Wyatt Reed. Welcome back, Wyatt. Hey, thank you, John. Thank you, Michelle. Always great to be on with you guys. Always good to have you. Uh, Wyatt, two days ago, Macron survived a no-confidence vote after the far right and the far left joined together to oppose him. They didn't have the votes to do anything. Macron won. Um, But four months ago, he lost his absolute majority in parliament. And so it's a little bit tough to get uh, legislative measures passed to get his policies implemented. And we're seeing that now, or we're seeing the results of that in this threat of a strike. Um, tell us a little bit about what this strike is about and what the unions hope to accomplish. Right. Well, tomorrow will be the second day of big protests across France in just 10 days. Although from the information that's currently available, widespread transit issues are not expected right now. Um, unlike these big protests that are slated for two weeks from now. I think that will be kind of something to keep our eyes on that the so-called Black Thursday protest in November when unions are are calling for a total shutdown of the metro system, transportation in general. Um, Here in in Paris, the protests tomorrow are expected to be centered around the Montparnasse area. Um, But rallies are really planned for all throughout the country in dozens of cities, big and small, as you pointed out, these unions are led by the CGT, the Confederation General de, uh, de Travail, which is the General Workers Confederation, They're calling for an increase in wages, pensions, 
scholarships for students. They have kind of a 10-point program. They want the minimum wage to be increased to 10 euros per hour. They want uh, salary parity between men and women. They want for replacement income for all the unemployed that would come in at that minimum wage level. They want for pensions for retirees to be boosted up to 15 an hour as well. Uh, increased sort of allowances, scholarships for students and uh, young people. They want rents to be lowered, to be capped at 20% of household income. The value added tax to be reduced to 5.5% on basic necessities like food and energy. They want fuel prices to be decreased and for those to be subsidized by revenues from multinational oil companies. And they want the end of exemptions for businesses from contributing to social uh, social and, and tax contributions. And uh, as you as you noted, you know, unlike the big protest we saw uh, last week, that was uh, a number of major political forces. To, tomorrow's are expected to be mainly pushed by the CGT. That 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 should be the main kind of driving force here. There are other. Uh, parties that are expected to participate, but it's kind of on an individual branch basis, whether the uh, Nupes party, which is closely linked with La, La Unsumis, the Unbowed, the party of uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Uh, there are some splits for sure in that party at the party level, uh, at the branch level, I should say. Uh, there is quite a bit of support for these protests, although Mélenchon himself has expressed publicly kind of a dissatisfaction with the direction of the CGT, he kind of uh, seems that they're acting a bit too brash. Uh, he wants them to be a little bit more diplomatic. Mm-hmm. So certainly some kind of um, intermovement splits uh, appearing, but the situation is very fluid. It changes from day to day. Um, so it's still up in the air as to exactly what we're going to see tomorrow. But uh, it should be happening all across the country. Well, Wyatt, what does this mean legislatively? If if French citizens are angry enough to participate in these strikes um, or to respect, you know, picket lines or to march in the streets like they did a week or two ago. There has to be some sort of move in parliament to address their concerns, right? Is anything like that happening or is the government all tied up in a knot? Right now, it it seems to be pretty convulsed, pretty, pretty tied up. Uh, There are, you know, as as you noted, you know, you have some strange bedfellows popping yep. up, you know, so-called far left, far right uh, forces kind of joining together to oppose Macron. But he did survive that no confidence vote. Yes. And, you know, that was based on this decision to basically ram through his uh, emergency funding mechanism for the next year uh, using what's called Article 49.3, which is, is a mechanism that allows the president to bypass the National Assembly and basically say, you know, uh, due to these uh, extreme circumstances, uh, I have to do this on my own. Uh, it's very undemocratic, uh, pretty unpopular, but as as we pointed out, not quite unpopular enough to have a successful no confidence vote. So that still means that uh, the elections so far are still a few years away. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Uh, I I can't let you go without asking you uh, a question about American politics. 
Yesterday, we saw the House Progressive Caucus be humiliated, really, after 30 members signed a letter to President Biden asking him to press Ukraine to go to the negotiating table to at least allow for a ceasefire in the conflict with Russia. But then they withdrew the letter by the end of the day. It's unclear exactly where the pressure came from. We don't know if it was the White House, if it was Nancy Pelosi. Several members of the Progressive Caucus blamed their staffs. We know that that's not true. Uh, That's just not the way things work in Washington, especially when you have 30 members' signatures on something that's already been pre-cleared. The bottom line is that the Progressive Caucus looks foolish today. Help us sort through this. How and why do you think this happened? Well, my gut tells me that the signees of this letter received a phone call or perhaps an in-person visit from a certain right. three-letter agency or from some of its uh, colleagues, uh, some, some of the so-called intelligence community uh, that uh, let them know, hey, this is uh, inappropriate and not to be uh, repeated anytime soon. It could have simply been Nancy Pelosi, Mama Bear Nancy Pelosi as AOC once referred to her. Um, they certainly were told something by someone high up in the U.S. government. And then they all kind of joined in lockstep. We saw uh, even Representative Mark Pocan went as far as to, to say that he's basically asking the Washington Post for a retraction <laughs> on their article that they, they <laughs> were, were having implied that, that they were, you know, that first of all, that they, because they used the stock photo of all these, congress, you know, CPC members, um, together at some other press conference right. and then they put it in and then that somehow implied that they had had a press conference about this instead of merely writing a letter. That was, you know, apparently what is causing the outrage among them. And, you know, obviously they're blaming their staff, which is just pathetic. You know, 30 members, those people's signatures were not forged by their staffers. No, right. no. That's not what happened. That's right. Um, and, and so, you know, the main kind of pushback that they are giving these Congress members is that, first of all, we've been misportrayed by the media. And second of all, we want to clarify that we're not like the Republicans. They said in this uh, this letter by Pramila Jayapal, um, she said that the proximity, uh, oh, she said, because of the timing, our message is being conflated by some as being equivalent to the recent statement by Republican leader McCarthy threatening an end to aid to Ukraine if Republicans take over. You like that? Threatening. That's, uh, that's, (laughs) and she said the proximity of these statements created the unfortunate appearance that Democrats who have strongly and unanimously supported and voted for every package of military, strategic, and economic assistance to the Ukrainian people are somehow aligned with the Republicans who seek to pull the plug on American support for President Zelensky with the Ukrainian forces. That is, you know, yeah, the, the chutzpah, the absolute audacity, uh, you know, to, to pull the plug on our necessary and vital subsidization of the Kiev regime, you know, our necessary subsidization of, in many cases, open Nazi uh, formations that are openly, you know, uh, integrated into their armed forces. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine, you know, the, the, to threaten an end to that? Um, you know, so that really shows you where, where these people stand. Where the real power in Washington uh, is, that was uh, there was a, a tweet by Representative Thomas Massey to this effect, basically showing, uh, stating that you know, if all these people are immediately 
pressured into withdrawing this statement to retracting their own letter within 24 hours, you know, how how can they be, how can they ever be expected to take a, a stand of conscience on any consequential matter? There's I tend a, to agree with that. There's a quote here from a piece of Vox did on the, the drama mm-hmm. from a, a congressional aide who was speaking anonymously, but who said, we floated the world's softest trial balloon about diplomacy, got smacked by the blob and immediately withdrew under pressure. I hate the idea that it's now going to look like progressives are endorsing the idea that diplomacy is appeasement. Yeah. And so honestly, I also kind of wonder if all of this stuff about how like, oh, it was fine, but the timing was wrong because of the midterms, blah, 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 is also just kind of political cover for, at least according to this telling, that this came from the foreign policy establishment uh, and not necessarily from, uh, you know, originating from party leaders. Um, But yeah, just an absolute embarrassment all around. Honestly, what a display. Yeah. Oh, I found the the specific tweet that I found pretty compelling from from Thomas Massey. He said, if 30 well-established members of Congress aren't permitted to issue a tactfully worded call for diplomatic resolution to war, how much latitude do you think they have to vote their conscience on consequential legislation? This retraction gives a glimpse into the real Washington. And I think he's spot on. It was not a a particularly harsh condemnation. And he's was, the most it was conservative milk toast letter I've seen. Yeah, yeah, and he's the most conservative member of the House of Representatives. Yeah. That says a lot. Absolutely. That says a lot. Well, right, Wyatt Reed, thank you for joining us. Wyatt is a Sputnik News journalist and analyst. He is currently in Paris. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. I have a lot to say, but I also just learned a thing that I want to tell you about. Uh, did you know there's a morning after pill to prevent sexually transmitted infections? I did not. I didn't know this either until about 90 seconds ago. Uh, Vox has an article asking why more doctors aren't prescribing it. Apparently... It is an antibiotic that works like a morning after pill. Instead of preventing pregnancy within hours of unprotected sex, it prevents STIs like chlamydia and syphilis. What? Yeah. It's been tested since 2015. It's called doxyprep. It's probably some combination of doxycycline. Uh, yeah. Huh. I mean, you know. Uh, you learn something new every day. Yeah, that's sort, of, that's sort of interesting. I can see also how, like, there have to be public health considerations uh, looking at how much preventative antibiotics can you prescribe without creating antibiotic resistance. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I can see that why you shouldn't just ev- everyone take doxyprep every time yeah, you have sex right. with anybody. No, you know, yeah, like you that seems like that. A bad, that seems like a bad idea. <laughs> um, but anyway, that caught my eye. Fascinating stuff. Also fascinating. So NPR has a story today that uh, seeks to explain why a very old drug that is used to treat prostate cancer cost an American patient more than $38,000. $38,000, even though theoretically it costs uh, slightly under $6,000 for providers to buy it. 
Uh, by the way, it costs providers in the UK about $260. My God. So, which then they pay and the government subsidizes and people don't pay for, which is how it should work. Uh, so this patient was a guy named Paul. Um, he got two of these injections, uh, right? So it would have caught, it's, it's an injectable drug. It goes into the muscle uh, and it d- does something to help prostate cancer. Uh, it would have cost his providers about $12,000 to buy those two shots, but actually it probably cost his providers much less than that, more like the $260 British uh, hospitals pay because his hospital participates in a federal program called 340B, which allows hospitals that serve low-income populations to purchase drugs at deep discounts. So the federal government is subsidizing these purchases, but the provider is charging the insurance company full price. And then the insurance company can turn around and extract more from Paul in this situation. And so how much did it attempt to extract? His insurance was billed for these two shots that take minutes to administer and can be given by a nurse or a doctor. They just go into the big muscle on your butt. Uh, $73,812. Incredible. It was $35,000 for the first, uh, $38,000 for the second. That included lab work and physician charges. Um, United Healthcare, which is his insurer, negotiated a rate for the two shots uh, of $27,500. The insurer paid $19,500. And uh, the guy was billed $7,000 with insurance for two shots of a cancer treatment that would be free in another country. And not because that country is subsidizing thousands of dollars worth of treatment, by the way. It right. cost them $260. This is a drug that was invented in 1973. It got its patent extended in 1989 because they created a slow-release version. Then after that patent was about to expire, they figured out a way to make the shot intramuscular. That extended the patent for another uh, you know, dozen years or so. And then over the last 20 years, they've been slowly raising the price because drug makers in the U.S. can charge whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Literally and whatever they want. Then after all of this, which is a crime <clears throat> in itself, the patient discovers there's in fact a pill that oh. does the same thing and costs a fraction of this amount. It just isn't pushed generally by providers because they can't drive up the price on it because you can charge a bunch of administrative fees around the administration of a shot, which again takes moments, but you can charge thousands of dollars for instead of prescribing somebody a pill. So now he's got a pill. He paid $200 for, you know, the equivalent of what one shot have been. So $200 versus $35,000. His insurer uh, paid about $6,000. The drug's list price is $27,000 a month. Um, Incredible. Just incredible. And this is a situation that is created here, right? This is not how it has to work. This is a situation in which the federal government now subsidizes to the tune of God knows how many billion dollars these private insurance companies that only exist to try to cheat people, right? I mean, NPR, our our national public radio uh, website, has a, a... At the end of this uh, article that is intended to be an explanation, not a charitable one, to be fair, but just saying, here's this grotesque system. Uh, It has a takeaway. Takeaway. First tip. If you are prescribed an infusion or injection, ask your physician if there are cheaper oral medications to treat your condition. Also, many drugs that are given by injection, that are given subcutaneously, can be administered by a patient at home, avoiding hefty administration fees. Don't you see? There's something wrong. 
if you need a tip sheet on how to try to prevent your doctor yeah. at the, you know, under pressure from the system that they are in too, probably, right? I mean, I'm not going to throw all doctors under the bus here. But if you need a handy tip sheet to try to keep yourself from being exploited at Gouged. every level in our medical That's system. Right. And you can't, like, there's no reform for this, right? All the options of reform that we are being offered are more ways for tax dollars to go to insurance companies, right? Right. And also, as as our guests will explain, when we talked about, uh, we talked about hospitals dumping pediatric beds Mm -hmm. in favor of adult beds because adult beds are, yeah. I I think these, I mean, hospitals are for-profit, right? There are lots of for-profit entities. Sure. Um, But- to some extent, our system means they have to make more money, right? Like every aspect of this system is admired, you know, in in these other turnings of the gear. So you can't you can't just point a finger at one, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fingers to be pointed. It go, all goes back to the health insurance uh, industry, of course. I want to say another thing. Um, this takeaway also said, keep in mind where you get treatment could make a big difference in your charges. A study found that. I I had been wanting to talk about this, and it's a story that fell through the cracks, but leading U.S. cancer centers charge enormous markups to private insurers for drug injections or infusions. So if you go to a cancer center, you might see your price inflated. Another study found hospital systems charge an average of 86% more than private clinics for cancer drug infusions. Wow. It's just, you shouldn't walk through the door uh, of a clinic or a cancer center, or any doctor's office, and have to clutch your wallet mm-hmm. and look through your, you know, your your list of notes on your phone of ways to make sure you don't get tricked right. in a vulnerable situation. Just everything about this is is absolutely disgusting. This is terrible. Yeah, you have to dismantle this, right? It's it, they're trying to cheat you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I thought I didn't want to let that just float by. Oh, right? that was very powerful. Imagine getting a seventy three thousand dollar bill. Yeah. I guess he got a $38,000 bill and, for two shots for your cancer. Yeah. So pay it or die Yeah, is what it comes down to. Yeah. And this is the, que- this is the question that people are facing. And again, one of the headlines that has been, you know, every couple of months, if you want to, you can see a headline on how many people in the United States are rationing insulin because they can't afford it. Because maybe they went to a place where, the, I mean, you know, I'm not going to try to speak to whether and where ins- insulin costs are inflated, but simply... Sure. We are told that this is how it has to be because of something, something, the market, something, something. Right. You can't control it. This is mm-hmm. absolutely it's not. It's just not true. It's just not true. And every reform that is being offered by by our mainstream parties, right? I'm going to say almost everyone. Maybe there's a good faith one out there somewhere. It almost always involves more money from the government going to health insurance companies, which are still actively trying to screw you. Mm-hmm. So that's, you, right. that's not a solution to any of these problems. Nice system we've given ourselves. Seriously. And is, uh, you know, ruthlessly defended and maintained by almost every single person in elected office oh, in sure. the United States. Sure. You know, it's all so about the money. Just, you can't, there's, yeah. Anyway, I, I, my conclusion is simply, you can't reform this and anyone who tells you they can is lying. Agreed. Okay. Well, to Ethiopia, where uh, honestly, maybe we have better news than the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, they're... Seems to be significant news in, in the two-year war there. For the first time, representatives from both the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front are meeting formally and publicly to discuss how to move toward peace. Mm. Uh, we learned in the last couple of weeks that there have been secret meetings in the past organized by the United States, but these are the first public talks. Uh, they began yesterday after a framework was agreed upon on Monday. The U.S., 
remains on the sidelines to some degree, as I mentioned, with the U.S. Secretary of State saying he spoke to the president of Kenya and the foreign minister of South Africa on how to assure a successful outcome, which I think is pretty rich considering our track record on peace through negotiation. Um, importantly, this is all occurring in a context on the ground in which the Ethiopian government uh, government forces are advancing and retaking cities. And so there are questions asked about, uh, you know, the, the Tigray's weakening negotiation yes. position and the appetite the Ethiopian government will have for nego- negotiation if they can just win outright on the ground. So joining us to, to break this all down is... Carmela Aragawi, she's an independent journalist who is formerly of CBS Los Angeles and Al Jazeera. Uh, she's an Ethiopian-American of Tigrayan descent. Carmela, thanks for joining us. Hi, Michelle. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. Let's start with the state of the conflict. Uh, the Ethiopian government appears to have major momentum. What is happening? And also, you know, the, the question that's been asked for the past couple of months is how much are forces from neighboring Eritrea involved? So it's unclear how much uh, forces from neighboring Eritrea are involved. There is a a group that uh, has been training in Eritrea for years, I want to say decades, that are uh, largely made up of ethnic um, Tigrayans from the Tigray region. So it's possible that's who they're talking about when they say forces from Eritrea, but it's also possible that there's Eritrean forces uh, somewhat involved in the fight, but there's no information that there's a significant amount of them. And the bottom line is, if there was to be, if we were to find out that there is, the Ethiopian government is completely within its right, as well as the Eritrean government, who continues to be threatened by the Tigray People's Liberation Front, uh, this armed insurgency group that was the old guard for 27 years. I mean, they fired mortars into Eritrea. They talk about making Eritrea disappear. So, um, if they were to be involved like they were in the first round, um, I mean, it's it's really within uh, Ethiopia's rights to ask them for help. Uh, that's one. And then two, as we're approaching the second year anniversary, um, it does look like the Ethiopian National Defense Forces are making a lot of headway. They have uh, captured several major cities um, in Tigray. The only one that appears to be left is the capital of Mekere. And so what it looks like, based on the information, is that they could be, they've, they've captured Aksum, which is about a 70 miles, if, it's, if it was to be a straight shot flight, 70 miles from the capital of Mekere, to the, that's to the north. To the south, they've captured uh, Maicho, which is about 50 miles uh, straight shot. To Mekele. So uh, it looks like they're moving in. I've talked to some sources that have confirmed that they're moving in and have gotten very close to Mekele and have surrounded Mekele completely, the capital of the Tigray region, completely. Um, and now, you know, it being a major city, I think what 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 it looks like the Ethiopian government is trying to do is, is make sure that there aren't civilian casualties in this process and they're dropping leaflets uh, multiple times into the city saying, we are not here for you, the people. We're not here to attack you, the people. We're here because of the Tigray People's Liberation Front that have picked up arms against the country, against the country's national defense forces. They did this the last time they captured Mekele back in November 2020, uh, but they weren't able to hold it for a lot of different reasons. I think they underestimated the level of indoctrination that had happened on the ground. Uh, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, once they lost power in 2018, moved back to that region where they hailed from. And you see it all over media. This is not a, an assumption or speculation. All over media, they told the people of Tigray, the rest of Ethiopia is against you. They're uh, against the 
all ethnic Tigrayans are coming to wipe us out for two years. That's what you heard on media. And I've talked to people that live there, including my mom, who lived there uh, a year prior to um, the war being started by the TPLF. So I think the Ethiopian government underestimated how much the indoctrination had happened. And uh, they also weren't as ready as they could have been. They didn't I don't know how much they saw this war coming. I mean, it was a, a, a overnight attack of the National Army Base in Tigray, which is the largest army base in the country. Uh, the prime minister, the current prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, had been for a long time trying to balance out the army so it wasn't just full of TPLF loyalists. It's an ethno-fascist yeah. group that you know pledges allegiance to this to this ethnicity, ethnic groups political group, not even the ethnicity. Um, and so it was a really difficult challenge to try to make the army actually loyal to the country and not to this uh, previous regime. And so, yeah, you know, th- these talks have been delayed uh, and it, the Ethiopian government ha- seems like has always been on board with the idea of talks negotiated uh, or, or orchestrated by the African Union. It was the TPLF representatives who uh, pulled back last time. Uh, now they've restarted. But, you know, it, despite the fact that the Ethiopian government is making advances on the ground, as you say, they've they've taken the city before and lost it. So maybe maybe that's not going to affect the atmosphere at these talks so much. What, what do you think of this context they're taking place in? Um, you know, I think it's a very different context than um, uh, November 2020 when the Ethiopian government captured uh, Makale back then. It's almost two years. They've had a lot of time to to study what's going on in that region. Uh, they've had time to prepare as far as the Ethiopian uh, National Defense Forces and the Eritrean um, National Defense Forces who are all who are all across the borders um, since they border Ethiopia. So, and, and they've been able to to uh, get different allies on board. The Ethiopian government has, and so the way that they're co- holding the cities now, I think, is very different than they did before. They are not underestimating what they're up against. They're doing. Um, they're, they have strict orders to to for part of the campaign to be re-educating the people on the ground who have at this point now. So in November 2020, they've just been told all of this indoctrination that the rest of Ethiopia uh, is all of a sudden against you, you, the poor people of Tigray, who are Mm -hmm. just as poor as anybody else in the other part of uh, the region. Whereas two years later, we've heard many reports, I, I know of personal reports, of people who've been forced conscripted, um, who, whose family members have been forced conscripted and haven't come back. Um, so two years later, the people of Tigray, I imagine, see the TPLF very differently. The challenge for the Ethiopian government is to make sure they understand that, yes, they understand the TPLF is not for them, but they need to understand that the Ethiopian uh, National Defense Forces are for them. So one, the TPLF's constituency is we're still unclear who that is at this point. Um, so it, so that's a big deal. Um, and then, two, the way that the military is holding uh, ground is, I think, a lot more methodical and different. And you're right. The Ethiopian government has always wanted peace. The people of Ethiopia have always wanted peace. We understand the cost of war. And even during the transition in 2018, when the TPLF was sidelined through years of the people's protests, people literally being killed for protesting against them uh, for six years and more. And then finally, a parliament was rejiggered and they were able to vote them out. So it was the, it would have been the first peaceful transition in modern Ethiopian history, but they couldn't let it go. So uh, two years later, they started a war. So during those two years pre-war, there were so many attempts uh, for uh, 
for mediations between the TPLF, who had retreated to the northern Tigray region from the capital of Addis, uh, and the, the central government. I, I've talked personally to people that were a part of the peace negotiations, people that are from that region, ethnic Tigrayans themselves, who said, we gave them every option. They were just, they seemed adamant that war was going to be their, their uh, approach. And then so when you fast forward to 2020, after they started that war by attacking National Army Defense Forces, so that was another sign that they're um, not for peace. And then they broke two ceasefires since, um, mm-hmm. uh, declared by the Ethiopian government, the latest one being in August of this year. So the first time they're actually for peace negotiations in somewhat of a consistent way is when they're losing, like when they're Mm -hmm. losing in a very significant way. And that's now. What are your hopes for these talks? We we don't really know anything uh, about their format. Uh, We know a little bit about what the Tigrayan forces have said their demands are. I don't know what the Ethiopian government's demands are. What do you think is going to be sort of on the table to start with? And what are your hopes for what can be accomplished here? So in these talks, you've got some uh, representatives from the TPLF on one side, Ethiopian government on the other side. And then you've got the U.S. and the U.N. as observers problem. They're problematic. The U.S. and the U.N., two years ago, if you asked Ethiopians, they had very favorable views of the U.S. and maybe even the U.N. Mm-hmm. Um, two years later into this conflict, it is so clear, and I, I love that you called, uh, I believe it was the Secretary of State who made that comment uh, about this, the, the, the peace negotiations rich. It's so rich that the U.S. is pretending to be uh, the peace negotiator in this. The head of the U.N., which the U.S. is the number one donor to World Health Organization head Dr. Tedros Adhanom is an executive member of the TPLF. He's used his platform to constantly demonize the entire Ethiopian and Eritrean people. The Ethiopian people have voted for this government. So when you say this government is trying to genocide ethnic Tigrayans, you're saying the people want to genocide ethnic Tigrayans, but they're very much intermixed. Uh, as Ethiopians, we don't even think about that when you're you know, getting married and you, everyone's got family from all over the place. So we don't believe that the U.S. is an honest broker in this. Ambassador Mike Hammer, who's a, um, a, a special envoy for the Horn, uh, went to Tigray right before this last TPLF offensive and took these selfies with these leadership. They're uh, accused of using child soldiers. They're accused of using human wave tactics in this war, uh, accused of, of, we know that they've attacked National Army Defense Forces. And then he came back and uh, days later, they started an offensive. And we had a meeting with him, uh, uh, Ethiopians all over the United States, and all he could say is, well, you don't think the Ethiopian government did anything wrong? What are you talking about? For five months, the Ethiopian government allowed humanitarian aid to flow into Tigray, knowing that it was likely going to rebels as opposed to civilians, right? And so at a time where he came back from Tigray as a person that was supposed to be a a peace envoy, and yet somehow the TPLF goes on offensive when he leaves, and then his attention is towards the elected Ethiopian government, is insane. And then weeks later, once this um, offensive starts to go a little differently than they expected for the TPLF, Ambassador Hammer finally goes, oh, you know what, when I was there, it was, it was pretty clear that the TPLF was preparing for war. That's not what he said when he came back. When he came back, he came back with a list of demands 
from the TPLF, including uh, restoration of uh, uh, electricity and telecom, which they themselves destroyed this, the, the infrastructure for that when they started the war and as they were fighting the war against the federal government. And, and he didn't say anything about how that was going to be facilitated. The Ethiopian government said, we will do that for the sake of the people, but we need guarantees about these utility workers that are going in. And over a dozen or two dozen utility workers have been killed in Tigray during this war as they're trying to uh, fix infrastructure. So who is going to go risk their lives? Who is going to go risk their lives for that? So, so there's just the, the U.S. has been such a dishonest broker. They keep doubling down and tripling down on these moves. If you look at what they're saying, what the Secretary of State is saying, what Ambassador Hammer is saying, what the State Department is saying, they mirror what the TPLF is saying in these negotiations. So. When it comes to these talks, most Ethiopians, Eritreans don't have faith in them, and their faith is in the Ethiopian federal government and the National Army Defense Forces, because the TPLF cannot live in peace. If they could, if, if the Ethiopians and Eritreans felt like they could live with this ethno-fascist group, they would. They would, but they've tried it for 27 years, for 50 years before that. Most recently, the last four years since transition, and then during this war for two years, they've shown that they will not. Uh, take peace as, as a resolution. They either want all of Ethiopia or they want Ethiopia to crumble. And that's exactly how they've been behaving. I want to ask, I mean, I feel like perhaps at a minimum there could be hope for, for some kind of uh, framework to improve the humanitarian conditions of people who are caught in this conflict zone. Uh, and so before we let you go, I wondered if you could just talk to us about what what is life like in Ethiopia in places that are, that are near conflict? What, what is happening? What's the situation on the ground? It's it's a really it's been a really difficult two years for many Ethiopians, both those that are in the actual uh, war zones in northern Ethiopia, including Amhara and Afar, but also in the rest of the country. That's that's economically strained because of this war. This is what it looks like to me, and this is uh, also based on uh, family members that I have there. When the Ethiopian government, the federal government, the only legitimate government is in Tigray, people tend to get their basic needs met. Because they work with these NGOs that, that, that help get humanitarian aid. That's a whole other issue. But the, 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 the aid actually gets to the people. When the Tigray People's Liberation, like, like it is right now, in the cities that they are capturing, they're actually finding warehouses full of USAID grain that, that the TPLF rebels were apparently storing while telling the rest of the world that Tigray was under siege and the people were star starving. Yeah, if the people are starving, it's because these rebels and, and their leadership are, are choosing to hoard aid for themselves and the war as opposed to give it to the civilians. So there are videos, confirmed videos, videos I've been able to confirm of the Ethiopian government uh, officials and National Army Defense Forces opening up these warehouses and actually giving the aid to the people that uh, that need it. Um, and so even, even during the act of war, the federal employees were going every couple of months and getting their check. They were getting paid. The Ethiopian government is interested. It's in its favor to take care of the people of Tigray. Uh, the TPLF, on the other hand, it works in its favor when the people of Tigray are suffering because it gets all this international attention. The U.S. is completely just shameless in the way that it goes about this. You've got 
places like the Holocaust Museum that just recently put out something that was so propagandistic. They were on the side of essentially genocide heirs, though the way that they're telling the story. So the TPLF, because of the 27 years of power and, and billions of dollars from the Ethiopian development aid that it's been able to amass, it buys the narrative everywhere it goes. And we also we keep having to chase it and say, listen, the US Holocaust Memorial uh, Museum, like what are you guys doing? Like, this is the actual story. You are getting it upside down. Yes, people are suffering, but you're essentially repeating the propaganda of the very people that are making them suffer. So because they have the international, quote unquote, international community, particularly in the West, they feel like they can just continue to double down. What And what I'll wrap with is what they don't understand is it's not the international community that they have to live with. It's Ethiopians that they mm -hmm. have to live with, and Eritreans who are their neighbors that they have to live with. And I can guarantee you, no matter what comes out of these peace talks, the people have to buy into it because they're the ones who have suffered. So the US, the Ethiopian government knows it cannot take them anything uh, back that has to do with the TPLF getting back into sort of any government positions because they've had it. They know exactly who they are. Harmala Arogawi, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, tell our listeners where they can go to find more of your work. Um, we started a, an African-centered news uh, website, so Eyes on Africa News, eoanews.com. So please check it out, eoanews.com. Uh, yes, please. And if you're interested, please contribute to support independent journalism, completely independent. Um, it's mostly me, to be honest, but we're trying to scale up. We've got a lot of great writers. Yeah. So please support. And I'm on all platforms at Hermela TV, H-E-R-M-E-L-A TV. And thank you guys so much always for, for hearing our perspective out. Thank you. Yeah, great that to speak fantastic. to you. We'll be in touch again. Thanks, Hermela. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and uh, come right back to talk more on domestic stories. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I am John Kiriakou, and I am here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Hello. We have just a moment before we solidify our connection with our next guest. Uh, so we wanted to raise really quickly, this was an article uh, that originally appeared in the, it was an opinion piece that appeared in the New York Times, mm -hmm. picked up by Yahoo News that Michelle brought to my attention. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, I want to pull this up. Uh, because it it's an opinion piece that uh, aims to describe to you what exactly is a penal colony. A Russian penal colony. A Russian penal colony, which is where Brittany Griner is going to be sent, right? Uh, and so it begins by saying some prisoners are tortured or beaten by fellow inmates. Some have to work 16-hour days. A few are forced to watch Russian propaganda on repeat. Uh, let's see some more descriptions of what this place is like well, that she they is have going these to. Forced calisthenics, calisthenics, followed by chess and backgammon. And you might have to sweep the yard. Yes, good I mean, lord. What I, the what jumped out to me is not uh, that this sounds fun or that I want to you no. know make fun of what it's like to be in prison. It's just when I saw this, John, I immediately thought of you because you yeah. spent time behind bars, of oh, course. Yeah. And I just wanted to say is. Any of this that sounds any different <laughs> than any United States prison. No. 
Sounds like my normal day. Yeah. And this is the thing. I, you know, <clears throat> it's bad for people to be, you know, being beaten sure, by guards terrible. and by prisoners right. is not part of what, you know, the punishment. I guess we sort of understand it to be part of the punishment, but it's not supposed to be, right? right? It's not supposed to be that you just go into a locked box and you get tortured in whatever way the people around you uh, can envision and execute. And right. that's what your your just court-ordered punishment is. That's not how it's supposed to be, but that is certainly how it is. Yeah, right? it's prison. It, They're yeah. not nice places. And it's very bad that uh, this is going to be the situation that Brittany Griner walks into. It's also very bad that it would be the situation she'd be walking into if she were sent to jail in the United States. You're exactly and so right. And so changing this terminology is she's going to a penal colony right. rather than going to whatever, I don't, you know. So and whatever they made a point of saying, Missouri. yeah, the, the penal colony formerly known as the Gulag. Yeah, okay, I mean. Come on. Yeah. It's just, tomorrow we're going to talk about a story in which it seems... I mean, this remains at the level of sort of allegation because it hasn't been proved in in court. But it seems like the administrator of a private uh, institution for detaining migrants mm -hmm. uh, decided to go out and do some migrant hunting in the desert with his brother. Right. right. So, like, yeah, the idea that U.S. prisons are uh, comfortable places where people are rehabilitated and Russian prisons mm -hmm. are uh, notorious hellholes. I just right. think. You Sorry, know. don't buy it. Yeah, I just simply just, don't buy it. It's just another like again. We have a we have a habit of attempting to vilify our enemies uh, by describing them as having do the, doing the very same things that we do in this country, and it's yes. just it's always worth pointing out. Not to say that it's good when it happens no, over no. there. No. But to say, hey, man, you want to get mad at that? Let me open a whole new world of things for you to get upset about Seriously. right here at home. Yeah. And I immediately shouted op-ed. So yeah. watch Consortium News for my next op-ed. Okay. The New York Times reported today that last summer, President Biden thought that he had a secret deal with the government of Saudi Arabia, whereby the Saudis would secretly produce additional oil for sale to the United States. Such a deal would justify or would have justified Biden's reneging on a campaign pledge to isolate the kingdom. Biden went forward with his July trip to the kingdom, complete with a fist bump with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and he ended up coming out of it with nothing to show for it. Still, Biden thought he had a deal. That was until OPEC Plus a couple of weeks ago, which includes Saudi Arabia, announced a 2 million barrels per day cut in production. That apparently is what has led to a so-called reassessment of U.S.-Saudi relations. The Pennsylvania Senate debate took place last night between Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and, and Dr. Mehmet Oz. It was a painful performance by Fetterman. We talked about it earlier on the show. Fetterman is still suffering the after effects of a serious stroke that he suffered in May. Fetterman raised more than a million dollars in the hours after the debate. But his performance was a blow, and the polls have the race now almost tied. Chelsea Manning's new book, Readme.txt, had a fantastic review in the Sunday New York Times. The reviewer said that the book was revelatory, and while it didn't focus solely on Chelsea's disclosures, it provided never-before-seen context. Still, the intelligence community redacted portions of the book that are already in the public domain and have been there for more than a decade. The New York Supreme Court yesterday ordered New York City to rehire and pay back wages to unvaccinated employees who were fired from their jobs during the pandemic. 
The court found that the New York City Health Commissioner's order that all employees must be vaccinated was arbitrary and capricious. Yeah, interesting, huh? Judge Kathleen McCormick, a Delaware Chancery Court's chief judge, has given Elon Musk until Friday to acquire Twitter or face a civil trial. Judge McCormick is also overseeing four other suits against Musk, including two that allege that he illegally enriched himself through Tesla, from which he took $50 billion in stock during the IPO. The Twitter case is not garnishing, uh, I'm sorry, garnering much attention, but it could make for a powerful blow against Musk and his wealth. The past couple of weeks have, been, have seen a scandal over racist comments uh, made by the president of the Los Angeles City Council and two other council members, all of whom are Hispanic. The council president has resigned, and Angelinos are taking a closer look now at their local elected representatives. What they've found is that city council members in L.A. for this part-time job earn about $300,000 a year, including $66,000 credited toward their pensions. That's more than double what city council members make in New York and more than double what aldermen make in Chicago. So what are Angelinos getting for their money? We're joined by Kevin Gastala. Kevin's a journalist and writer for Shadowproof.com and co-host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. Welcome back, Kevin. Hey, it's good to be talking with you. Great and, to um, have you. I, I, I don't want to step on your show, but I, I just have to ask both of you, given the story you were talking about with the Russian penal colony, do, you, do either of you think it's punishment to have to read Fyodor Dostoevsky? Because, <laughs> because that's what this article says, that people in this colony are punished and Griner's reading Fyodor Dostoevsky. But I thought people like reading that, like it's really yes. good literature. Yeah, I, you know, somebody, I have enjoyed it in my life. Somebody actually sent me uh, several Dostoevsky books when I was in prison. I read them all and yeah. I enjoyed them all. Yeah. Wow, conditions really are exactly the same. <laughs> exactly. You know, the only the only thing that was different was that they didn't starve us. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Otherwise, what he was describing from 150 years ago, that's exactly how it is today. So, yeah, good call. Kevin, this New York Times um, piece today, front page, gave the blow-by-blow blow of these negotiations with Saudi Arabia to raise oil production through the end of the year to try to head off inflation in the U.S. And this is... This is a classic move by an incumbent president approaching midterms where his party is unpopular, right? You, you have a secret deal to force oil prices down, bring inflation down just in time for uh, the elections, and then your party is happy. The Times says that the deal was so advanced that lawmakers were actually given classified briefings about it. And Adam Schiff, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, publicly urged Biden not to make the trip to Saudi Arabia. In the end, Biden was embarrassed and he came out of Saudi Arabia with nothing to show for the trip. So, first of all, what's your take on this? Is this a temporary setback in U.S.-Saudi relations or is this part of a bigger long-term problem that we're going to have to face? I'm one of those people that believes that we have a multipolar world now. And uh -huh. I think this this illustrates that, like that the U.S. doesn't get to run the show anymore. There are powers that are clamoring for their own position in the globe, so to speak. Yeah. And what this New York Times article lays out, uh, or, or what the story about this failed deal that didn't come to fruition lays out, is that Saudi Arabia doesn't want to rely on the United States or doesn't want to have to, you know, one of the things that the 
tables showed that Chelsea Manning disclosed was that uh, you know they were asking the U.S. to get them planes that were like the Air Force One that uh, the president flies around. Well, maybe they don't want to beg the United States for those things yeah. anymore. And uh, and it's pretty clear that this this kingdom, these this this group of rulers who are autocrats, who deprive people of human rights, who are horrible to women, um, are are basically also ready to assert their dominance in the region, regardless of what the U.S. agenda is for that part of the globe. Um, and now there's this hilarious uh, quote I have to read here, uh, and I love that I get to read this on Sputnik Radio. It says, deconstructing Saudi decision-making right now is like Kremlinology on steroids, said Hussein Ibish, a scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. It's become a matter of a relative handful of people around the king and the crown prince. But that first part is, uh, I don't know what it means. I'm not sure what anybody's trying to say, but it means about as much to me as anybody who claims to know anything about whatever Kremlinology is. Yeah, Kremlinology was, it, it came out of the CIA in the 50s and 60s. The CIA had such poor sources in the Soviet Union that what they would do is they would put together teams of people to look at photographs that the Soviet government had released. So there would be, for example, Stalin standing in the middle or Khrushchev. And analysts would pour over this and say, well, so-and-so is standing next to him. That means he's ascendant. And then so-and-so is standing behind that guy, which means he's out of favor right now. And they would come up with, you know, national estimates, national intelligence estimates based on this silliness that came to be known as Kremlinology. And this went on to uh, spawn E-News magazine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and all of the celebrity body language experts that exactly you can get. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, the body language experts. Yes. Kevin, what do you make of last night's debate between John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz? I'm certainly biased. Um, and so I, I went in there with my own opinion. Uh, they were certainly different on the issues, especially on abortion, student loans. But Fetterman's performance, his physical performance, was just absolutely awful. His staff had tried to lower expectations. This was the first time, though, that we've seen him perform live, and the effects of his stroke were on full display. Do you think last night might be enough to doom his campaign? So, uh... You know, I, I read this comment that stuck with me is on a message board, and I'm just going to read the first part of it because I think it's a view, and I'd like to put it out there to sort of counter the narrative and suggest that maybe some people might see this in John Fetterman. So, And this is just a random person. I'm, I'm very clear about that, but I, I like this sentiment. It's sad that people are looking at Fetterman's performance as some sort of failure. He knew he wasn't fully recovered. He knew he was having problems still, and he knew he could have canceled at any time. Still, he was up there on that stage tonight doing his absolute best despite his current handicap. It takes grit, determination, and courage. If that doesn't show a willingness to keep going when the situation gets tough, I don't know what does. And so – that could be a view of some people that uh, rather than hiding and disappearing, remember, like Joe Biden had issues and they just kept him in a basement for yeah. like yeah. six months before Election Day. 
because they knew that the um, number of times that he would be seen in public interacting with people, well, when he was running in the primary, there were multiple times where Biden got himself in trouble um, insulting voters who didn't want to support him and telling them to go vote for his opponent, like Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders. And so – you know, I'm not saying that that is the correct view, but I'm just putting that out there as a view. And sure. And also, I would just say that I'm not sure how much this affects the outcome of the race. I mean, one, I'm I'm curious if it's going to be true or not, but I am very open to the theory that Michael Moore has put forward that there's going to be a blue tsunami just based on his track record of being right that Trump was going to win the election back in 2016. And he's got a pretty good record of being right when it comes to knowing the pulse of the country politically. Um, And uh, Dr. Oz did himself no favors by saying, and it might have been a mistakenly worded comment, but he said something to the effect of um, abortion should be between yeah. women, doctors, and local leaders. Local, I mean, yeah. And, yeah, it's just and, crazy. And uh, and no, I don't think that's what anybody in Pennsylvania really wants. So while he did a bad uh, performance, I'm not sure what kind of effect it's going to have on Election Day. We've already seen something that conservatives are upset about is mail-in ballots and early voting. Um, they're all, all like half of what was sent out has already come back in. Yeah. So people voted before this debate. Good point. Uh, and uh, so I don't know. I think that a lot of the impacts are going to be exaggerated. And I will also say, since this is our, this is our like talk of midterms, I'll close with this comment, which is that when you see that the races are narrowing, I always have this feeling that that could be the case that these races are tightening. But I also think that like the media wants people to believe that the races are tight mm-hmm. because that mm-hmm. gives them a way to keep us all engaged with what they're doing as corporate news outlets. Good point. And if the races are decided, if it's actually true that John Fetterman is going to win by eight or nine points over Dr. Oz because he's not polling well because he's not relatable because they don't think he's from Pennsylvania, which he's not. And also because he actually looks like he's from Hollywood when John Fetterman looks like he's a working class person. Right. Then that uh, would make us not want to care about developments anymore. We're not going to follow the narrative. (laughs) We're just going to wait until Election Day for the outcome. Right. I mean, for all the discussion about it, it remains very much up in the air how much of an impact any debate has on any election. That's right. And it's unclear still how many Pennsylvanians actually watched the debate. And keep in mind, too, that the number of undecided voters is very, very small. It's only like three percent. So this may have had no effect whatsoever on the on the uh, election. Kevin. Oh, and Everett Stern. Let me just quickly add Everett Stern. He uh, threw his weight behind John Fetterman and was pulling 3%. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's important. That's important. 538.com today changed its projection from the Democrats having a 70% chance of holding on to the Senate to now a 54% chance of the Democrats holding on to the Senate. The Democrats are showing weaknesses, as we just said, in Pennsylvania, um, also in Nevada, The Arizona race might be in play and a Marist poll released yesterday and Marist is is it trends Republican um, said that Herschel Walker is now beating Raphael Warnock 49 to 47. With that said, early voting in Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia and some other states 
is literally breaking records. It's dramatic how many people have already uh, voted early. What do you think of these races less than two weeks from the midterms, keeping in mind, as you said a moment ago, that a lot of these voters have already voted? Yeah, so again, like... There, there are two ways to approach this because we're we're talking about polling, and we know that polling firms have been wrong before. We know that polling firms um, led us to believe a certain outcome back in 2016, like Hillary Clinton was going to win, but Donald Trump actually won. And 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 we've been told that they've made adjustments and that they're doing better, but I don't know. And it's it remains to be seen. In my view of like whether they're able to appropriately capture new voters and what those people are going to bring, um, the younger voting population is probably not going to vote Republican majority. It's probably more of a Democratic majority, um, especially given the extremism of the Republican Party. But I'm not going to let Democrats off the hook. I think that the one message that we could spend some time on or, or a few minutes here on this show is that the fact that it's narrow is the Democrats' own fault because they aren't addressing the economic issues that people are dealing with in their messages. You know, there are things that they want to talk about that I just don't think the average family, whether they're living in an urban city like Chicago or New York, uh, or somewhere in uh, rural Pennsylvania, Kansas, or Missouri, or whatever. I don't think that they really want to talk about Ukraine um, and how important it is that we make sacrifices to defend democracy. And yet Biden thinks that like that's a winning issue. But all they see is that, hey, um, it, I think that's having something to do with how things are getting more expensive. I think that has something to do with gas prices going up. I think that that like I'm not getting any relief and you're fighting this war and you're continuing to send money over to Ukraine and I just feel like I'm being left behind. I think that that's something that Democrats have decided they're not going to address and it's a problem for them. And then also, you know, we have all of these um, other things related to the the economy, the stress, uh, the, the, the indicators of a recession and people feel like Biden's in denial. Like he's acting yeah. like there isn't a recession in the United States. Meanwhile, there are layoffs that are increasing at companies. Uh, we know that corporations are under stress. Uh, we know that there are ripple effects. And we know that the Federal Reserve adopted a policy where they would like to bring wages down in order to uh, stabilize the economy. And that's part of their tactic of raising interest rates or uh, aggressively raising interest rates, which is causing – huge ripple effects globally and impacting other countries. Uh, so aside from what it's doing to voters, there's there's a there's a global problem. But, you know, I think these things are not part of what Democrats are talking about in their they, they want to talk about January 6th. Yeah. Nobody cares about January 6th. No. That's two or three no. years ago now. Totally agree. And that has nothing to do with voters concerns. Totally agree. Really quickly before my next question. Uh, RealClearPolitics.com just came out with all the latest polls, all released today. Arizona governor, the Republican Lake by four. Arizona Senate, Blake Masters versus um, uh, uh, Kelly, the astronaut, the Democrat, tie at 47-47. He was supposed to, Kelly was supposed to clobber Masters. Uh, In Florida, the Senate race, Rubio by 11. The Florida governor's race, DeSantis by 14. Uh, The North Carolina Senate race. 
um, Bud over Beasley by four. Bud is the Republican. Uh, you know, there's there's not a whole ton of good good news in uh, these polls for the Democrats. We'll wait and see. But I want to move on to another issue. Kevin, you recently wrote, well, recently, you yesterday wrote in the dissenter about the parts of Chelsea uh, Manning's new book, readme.txt, that the U.S. government had censored. Chelsea goes on at length in this book about how she came to the decision to make the revelations that she made and how she physically did it. But there's very little about what was actually released, despite the fact that it's all in the public domain. The government still won't let her talk about the information that she released. Tell us about what you wrote and um, and about what she was not allowed to say in this memoir. Yeah, so she said that she did this so she could tell her own story, which I think is really important. And I was moved by the dedication in the opening to brave trans kids, and I think she'd become a kind of role model for them and inspired them. But then to the thing that I've spent most of my time writing about, which is the Espionage Act prosecution she survived and you know the classification of the information and what she revealed and disclosed to WikiLeaks, she has these sections where she wants to go back and she didn't know this. It's important for people to recognize that when she's in prison, she doesn't know what the response is in the world to what WikiLeaks is publishing. Those That's Afghanistan right. war logs, Iraq yeah. war logs, the U.S. state embassy cables, including also the collateral murder video. And so she does that in her book. She tries to go back and recount what the response is in the world. And she wanted, I believe, to summarize some of those documents that had made a big splash. But when you look in her book, all you see are black bars in those sections where wow. she tried to summarize. So let's just let's speculate. I bet she was probably writing about the cables and wanted to say that they had an effect there that, that in Egypt and Tunisia – People responded and there were uprisings. Well, we don't get to see that, but we all know that that happened. We know that that's part of the narrative. And then I go on to, I'm not going to go into all the details because we don't have the time, but I go on to link this back to the ACLU's lawsuit that they filed against the State Department when the cables were disclosed so that they could get documents declassified for cases on Guantanamo detainees um, in order to fight and challenge the CIA's uh, black site prison program and and the torture and 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 the rendition of of people like Abu Omar in Milan and the State Department says well here's some we'll we'll give you some redacted and we'll also uh, but we'll also say that like some of these you can't have at all so then you got to see a roadmap of their classification decisions you basically get to see like what they're hiding and what they're not going to hide. And you get to see how they're concealing and abusing the classification system by hiding torture and war crimes. And um, I think that's what you get to see here now with this book. Like you also get to see that not only are they censoring Chelsea Manning and depriving her of free speech, but they're also effectively saying that this stuff that we don't think should be secret because journalists have gotten awards for exposing it and human rights organizations have cheered their release. Well, they just don't care. They're going to continue to abuse the classification system. Exactly right. What lesson do you think we should take from this decision by the New York Supreme Court, which we should point out is the lowest level court in New yeah, York? It's very funny. Right? <laughs> to order New York City to rehire and pay back pay to employees who were fired for refusing a COVID vaccine. Is this just the beginning of a period of local litigation, or do you think this is the start of a trend that other states and localities might act on 
in the um, in the courts. Yeah, so I'm seeing that the 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 pushback from I guess it would be the law department in New York is that there are other rulings that have upheld this mandate, so this decision conflicts. So I just put that out yeah. there to say yep, yep. that um, there's going to be many more days of court proceedings to sort out if there was really something wrongfully done to these people who were told that they had to get a vaccine. Uh, but what I am sympathetic to is that uh, the judge criticized how there were exemptions for athletes, artists, and performers. And so, you know, you have seen one of the biggest problems, I believe, with the COVID pandemic. When you go back and you look at what were the failures of government in creating a public health policy that everyone would follow, I think you're going to find that the loopholes and sometimes those things where they told you one thing one day and then the next day they told yeah. you a completely opposite thing, that that's actually where uh, we all went wrong. And if you believed in these public health policies for containing the pandemic and you also thought that they weren't just about depriving people of their civil liberties, but it was about keeping people from getting sick – um, they aired when they created these exemptions because there were certain industries that were important that we had to make sure they could keep going. So, hey, sorry, if you're a baseball player, you don't have to get this as long as you're not traveling here. If you're just traveling interstate, but if you leave the country, you got to get a vaccine. But if you stay here, you're fine. Um, that kind of a thing. I think if you're a sanitation worker, you go, well, why does why does a guy in Hollywood have to get a vac? He they don't have to get a vaccine, but I have to while I'm taking care of garbage. Right. Exactly. Um, Elon Musk seems to not take lawsuits against him against himself terribly seriously. On Friday, he's going to have to appear at a civil trial in Delaware where he has to complete his deal to buy Twitter or be fined billions of dollars. As it turns out, Musk, who right now is the world's wealthiest man, doesn't actually have that kind of money just sitting around. It's all in Tesla stock. What do you think happens to Twitter if Musk can't make the deal on Friday? Is that a good thing for Twitter? And do you think it will do anything about transparency and censorship, which just seem to be getting worse and worse on Twitter by the day? Yeah, I don't know. This one's sticky. I won't, I won't say a whole lot other than I, I know that um, like Tesla stock has a reputation of being this kind of a, a, a cult stock. Yes. That people are just like very, very militantly into. Uh, there's a whole culture around Tesla. I even remember he sent out these like metal whistles that people got where they were mocking people who were – um, speaking out against Tesla, which I, I wasn't a fan of since I cover whistleblowers. Right. But um, but uh, to me, it just seems like whoever is concerned about the future of Tesla has to be really worried about where this is going with Twitter because it is going to affect, I think, the health of the company ultimately. Like if he if he's forced to buy Twitter, but he doesn't have the funds for it, then he's going to have to lay off people at Tesla or he's going to have to pare back the company or there's going to be some kind of effect on what is probably the most healthy part of his world, so yes. to speak. And that's that's my only take. 
Right. And then real quickly, I want to ask you about the Los Angeles City Council. It seems like it's in a state of crisis or chaos in L.A. What do you think the solution to big city fat cats who sit around and criticize using racially charged language, their colleagues, while their city's falling apart? Clearly, the solution isn't to pay them more money. They get paid more than double what anybody else in the country uh, makes. And all of a sudden, we've got this situation where you know, the, the arguably the most important members of the Los Angeles city council have to resign because of this racially charged taped conversation. Now what? Yeah. Uh, well, I think that from the national to the state, to the city level, we see evidence that these people are getting paid so much to do so little. And, you know, I don't think it's limited to city councils. I think people think, Members of Congress should get pay cuts, um, especially if they're going to trade stocks and do insider trading. Uh, then they don't need such inflated salaries. Uh, so I think that, like, when you see this way that they're handling themselves, people just resent it, and um, and then I think that just fuels the backlash to anyone who they see as part of the establishment. And so then, when we're trying to make heads or tails of a midterm election, and it doesn't make sense ideologically. It really just becomes throw the bums out. And then that's why it's hard to figure out why it's so close. Kevin Gastala, thanks for uh, hanging on a little long today. Happy to have your insights. Kevin Gastala is a journalist and writer for Shadowproof.com. And he's the co-host of the podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. His book about uh, Julian Assange is going to be coming out just after the new year. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. Sometimes we bring you John Kiriakou complaining about Cat Stevens. In I case hate Cat Stevens. Hot mic, hot mic <laughs> moment there. Or Yusuf Islam. Uh, yeah, you him change, too. You know, it's sort of... A, Kind of a bummer if you change your name, like, and, and people call you the the wrong name for decades and decades. decades to the point where you have to change it again and call yourself now Yusuf Cat Stevens. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, John Kiriakou, a hater over here. I don't have an opinion on Cat Stevens. Uh, and we're talking about something totally different. We are going to talk about now uh, efforts to track abuse by priests in Native communities. Uh, also to talk about what the church has done so far to meaningfully rectify past wrongs. There's something beyond uh, apologizing and putting on a headdress, maybe. The I'm not sure how much. keyword is meaningfully. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we are going to talk about how tribes in New York are getting ahead of the state in the weed game and how long that is going to last. And uh, maybe get into what the New York governor's race means for Native nations. Joining us for all these conversations is John Kane. He's a Mohawk activist and educator. He's producer and host of the Let's Talk Native podcast, and he's the co-host of Resistance Radio. Thanks for joining us again, John. Well, thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about this article in Indian Country News this week that discusses claims that priests credibly accused of abuse were dumped on Native communities. Uh, The database 
It maps Catholic abuse in Native America. It covers just Jesuit priests and brothers in the Jesuits' West province, which includes 10 Western states, uh, Arizona, Alaska, California, Hawaii, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, Oregon, Utah, and Washington. Uh, the mapping project itself notes that it relies on data provided by Jesuits' West, which means it's not entirely complete. And, and basically is data provided by a Catholic institution guided by its own interests. And so it says this is a tool for tracking abuse and also an artifact of problems inherent in all institutional Catholic archives related to abuse, which is, I think, an important point to, to bear in mind. Um, but it shows that half of all the men Jesuits named as having been credibly accused of abuse had allegations coming from Native missions. And what these... Um, Data mappers have said is this anecdotally supports both the idea that native missions and church run foster programs were used as dumping grounds for problem priests uh, and also that priests who never offended in white communities saw opportunities at native missions. And John, I know your initial reaction to this was to say uh, that it might be not correct to see these places as dumping grounds, but rather breeding grounds for predators. And so I wanted to talk about you know, your reaction to this mapping project and its analysis. Well, I, I think there, there is likely, uh, and more than likely, a connection between uh, these clergy who were involved in these uh, these sexual abuses, and uh, and the experience that Native people had in these residential schools, but I think it's a little backwards. Not completely backwards, but I think it's a little backwards because I mean, consider what these residential schools or boarding schools really were. They were like black holes. I mean, yeah. kids got sent there, dragged there. I mean, forced to go there, and there was no oversight. I mean, look in a in a general. Christian parish, or, you know, a Catholic parish or whatever else, you have parents involved with their kids. You have, mm -hmm. there's there's community oversight, not in these residential schools. So you had priests, and it wasn't just the priests. I mean, the nuns were sexually abusive as well, and and other other staff members. But you had a situation where the these church-run schools, federally funded or state-funded schools, but but run by churches, not just the Catholic church, by the way, um, that were that they basically had full control over these children, twenty four yeah. hours a day. They had power of attorney over them. They could do, I mean, some of, frankly, some of these uh, young girls had abortions performed on them. They mm -hmm. they were some of them were sterile, sterilized. They all of this stuff happened under the the guardianship of uh, of these church of these churches that ran these things so if you were ever to see a situation where a vulnerable population and i mean not just vulnerable because they're kids but they were mar kids of of a marginalized people that you know and that had nobody to call out to <laughs> they, yeah. they had nobody to go to and so you could see how how abuse could uh, could develop there now I'm not saying that that it wasn't also a dumping ground because look if you if you had a problem priest why not send him to a place where nobody's going to ever have to uh, you know be concerned about what their behavior is but I I think it's more likely and I've said this a long time ago before before this report came out that I think if you if this is followed closely you're going to see a, a a connection between these this rampant uh, clergy sex abuse scandal that's rocked the United States and Canada, uh, and uh, and these schools. And part of it is because the, some of this deviant behavior was allowed to uh, you know to, to proffer there. Mm -hmm.
And what, I mean, we have had symbolic reconciliation lately between the Catholic Church and Native communities. You know, we had meetings between the Pope and First Nations representatives in the Vatican. The Pope came to Canada to apologize for the disastrous residential school program and the evil done within them and by them. Uh, but we also have seen, you know, simultaneously just how difficult it has been for victims of church abuse to, to one, ha- have that abuse recognized uh, and to get anything out of the church in terms of compensation. And so I wonder if you can tell us about, you know, yeah, what, what kind of material compensation has the church offered in response to this disaster and uh, claims of abuse from Native communities? Well, let me back up. First, let's be clear. The Pope did not apologize on behalf of the Catholic Church. He apologized for the behavior of people who worked for the Catholic Church. Yes. I mean, he was re- if you really parse his words, you realize that he didn't apologize for any role that the church itself has uh, played in this. Yeah. It just that, you know, it's just really a, a bad he thing. He did that, also that use, we had to- he used the language of natural disaster in a way that I found kind of uh, disappointing. Like, oh, it was a disaster. Oh, it was a catastrophe. Okay, well, that's sort of like, that's what you say when a river comes through your community. Right. Not when you, you know, design and execute a system that uh, perpetuates abuse. Well, I guess is how you uh, uh, how you define nature, I guess. Yeah. And uh, apparently the church does a different job than uh, than most of us who live on the planet. But, you know, getting to the other part of your, your question, let's be clear. White kids who have been abused by the church have gotten paid a lot more than anybody uh, in any of these schools. There's been a certain compensation that's come out of the, uh, out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission on Canada and Canada. But I don't know any Native kids abused in these schools who have received any compensation from the Catholic Church. And and, and again, mm. the the numbers would be staggering. Because, you know, everybody, a lot of news got, you know, got made out of um, the Catholic Church and, and this you know, clergy sex abuse scandals that have been going on. But uh, and even some of the compensations and there are people, New York State had, you know, extended a period of time that people could, you know, could file their claims. And there's a lot of news in the state, but all uh, and all over the country. But I, if you want to, if anybody wants to do that story, compare the, the compensations that, that white kids have gotten. Versus what any native people have gotten. It's it's there's there has been none. And mm-hmm. when you talk about meaningful contrition, there has been none. And you know, I, I one of the things, and 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 I gotta just say this, even when we talk about things like truth and reconciliation, you know, I've talked to you before about how I think there has to be restoration, not reconciliation. But think about the truth here. This abuse these schools existed for over 150 years they actually have been they they continue to exist up until very recently it's just that the kids weren't necessarily forced and taken from their uh, families that ended in in the 70s in in uh in the united states but these things started after 1819 when they passed the the civilization act it wasn't wholesale like uh, an operated under the bureau of indian affairs until the later in that in that century but it's over 150 years. That's longer than slavery was legal in the United States. That's that is literally from Abraham Lincoln to Richard Nixon. I mean, you had you had the Civil War, you had the abolition of slavery, you had uh, women's suffrage movements. Save the children came in, into existence, all while our children were being ignored. Mm-hmm. So I think to, to understand the full scope and scale of what Native people experienced. By having their kids ripped away and have and having this abuse done to them, I don't I don't think anybody's even put a, a proper uh, you know 
measurement around this thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think part of that, and I think maybe something that underpins discrepancies between who's getting compensated by the Catholic Church and who isn't, is that you know, I mean, you can create scenarios where uh, that will draw predators, right? Like anytime you put vulnerable children into a, any kind of institution, predators are going to come because they, they're easy prey. But when it's when it's uh, white children, it can be a terrible accident over and over. And when you were talking about uh, this residential school program in particular, I think one of the reasons people don't want to talk about it is because it was systemic and it had a purpose. And it, to some degree, you know, the abuse was part of the purpose, right? And so- Absolutely. I mean, kill the Indian, save the man. I mean, you're right. You you can uh, think about about deviant priests uh, when when it comes to white kids. But when you think about the, the normalcy of the abuse that took place in these in these residential schools, it's not a systemic failure. It's just plain systemic. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right. This this created, you know, such a vulnerability because, like I said, who are the kids going to complain to? They they didn't even have their parents available to them. Yeah. Yeah, you just create a. I mean, you create the perfect scenario for for widespread abuse that's never going to get any attention. Um, I, I think we have answered this, but I know you were you had a recent discussion on Resistance Radio saying like we we simply, despite all of the headlines and the attention paid recently, we do not understand the scale of the harm done by uh, the boarding school system in the United States and Canada. And I, I wonder if there's if you think there's more to say on what what we are missing when we contemplate that system. Well, I mean, it, it, when you think about what the purpose of the of the schools were, which was to really eliminate us. I mean, and, and even I think even the Pope ultimately used the word genocide. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, although, again, doesn't claim that the Church played a role. He didn't do anything about the doctrine of discovery or any of that stuff. But, yeah. uh, but no, when, when you consider that, and here's the crazy part: my father's generation were still they my. My uncles, my aunts, my father, they were all fluent Mohawk speakers. They it took that many years for a specific generation to make the decision that no, we're not gonna we're not gonna teach our children to speak. I mean, it was just a natural thing. But none of my cousins spoke. I mean, the, the, many have learned it now because we've we've developed language programs in the school. But it's it's almost amazing to me that that level of abuse. It would it would take it would take almost five generations before uh, before a generation would say nope I, I, it's it's worth more harm than good to teach our our own kids the language yeah. uh, you know these are these are again are, are some of the things that get get missed in the conversation and you know we, we can talk about you know deaths we can talk about abuse we can talk about neglect we can talk about all these other things but I mean five this is five generations. We had our children for five generations. We had our children taken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it is hard to contemplate. I have a couple other questions. There's no good transition to make, right? Away from uh, a, a, you know, a crime of this scale. But we're just yeah. Gonna that, have that's to... a curtain drop. But no, yes. we'll, let's go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I, and also, this is slightly more <clears throat> cheerful news, at least for the moment. Um, there was an article in the last month about how tribes in New York are ahead of the state when it comes to getting in on the commercial marijuana business uh, because they don't, as of now, they don't have to wait for for state permits. 
And so far, the state has been pretty hands-off with the director of the state office of cannabis management saying what's happening on tribal lands right now is outside our purview. Uh, we have had a lot of discussions, however, about how, um, you know, state governments like to, when they spot tribes making money some way, enact a thicket of laws around it to enable them to skim off the top. So I wonder if you can talk about, uh, you know, how, how long you think it will remain the case that New York State is going to kind of uh, allow these tribal nations to uh, create their own commercial marijuana operations. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting because we're still fighting the state of New York specifically over tobacco. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. We still have people who are, who are having their bank accounts seized and uh, and you know all kinds of challenges with, with taxation, both federal and state. It's it's kind of remarkable. And then you have the head of this cannabis um, control board flat out saying to the public, I mean, w without any real prompting, that the only place in New York State that you can legally buy recreational marijuana was on on native territories. He, I mean, he. He offered that in a, in a conversation. He wasn't even pressed for it. So, and, and I think once they made that statement, and I think there were already plenty of uh, places up in Mohawk territory and out here in Seneca territory that were beginning to uh, uh, to go down that path. But that essentially threw the doors open. And then, of course, here in Seneca territory, the Seneca Nation legalized it uh, before they had anything put in place also. So... A lot of the um, the private sector in in many of these native territories just you know they they saw, they saw the green light so so they just went ahead. Mm -hmm. um, but one the one caution that I'll say is that when those statements came out of the the state tobacco guys or uh, I'm sorry cannabis guys they also said however we are still um, hoping to negotiate. A some sort of cannabis compact with uh, with uh, with tribes, so we can d develop this business cooperatively. And of course, we know how compacts have worked out. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, the gaming compact is is just a complete disaster with with you know Kathy Hochul and uh, and, uh, and Andrew Cuomo having squeezed the Senecas for billions of dollars. And if you set that against uh, our ongoing fight over tobacco, we have done we have fared much better with the tobacco business by not entering into a compact, in spite of the fact that we still, you know, have our legal skirmishes over it. What is going on? We, with I saw this story about this fight over like tens of millions of dollars in taxes because of uh, I saw one story because of cigarettes shipped from a Canadian company to New York. What What is the deal? Okay, so the, this, you know, when we, um, and, and it does relate back to the cannabis thing, we realized that the, the state was going to do everything it could to stop us from getting supply. Um, and of course, that, that supply was from the, the premium tobacco brands in, in the United States. So many, or several, I should say, uh, companies started developing native brands. And, and one company in particular, uh, a company called Grand River Enterprises on the Canadian side, uh, manufactured a cigarette called Seneca brand cigarettes, Senecas, that um, was catering the, to the American market, but it was exclusively available only on native territories. So it wasn't going out into into you know into the convenience stores or, or bodegas or anything else. It was it was really meant as a tobacco a native tobacco product, and so that was our way to avoid uh, the the state going after. Uh, their state licensed wholesalers who are supplying us with Marlboros or Newports or whatever else. So we we kind of that's how we won that fight for all intents and purposes. But they they were going after 
the supply, and they've continued to try to go after this supply. So what happened in in the situation that you're talking about here? Um, well, Grand River Enterprises and their American distributor, Native Wholesale Supply, did was they re, they reconfigured how they were bringing the, the tobacco product in. So it was only it, so it was the nations that was bringing in rather than they were entering it. You know, they're paying the duties and all that stuff, right. but they weren't paying any New York state taxes. But they, they changed that model. And when they did that, they filed bankruptcy to try to put a stop to any claims that New York state was putting on uh, on them over taxes. And so this, this settlement that you saw recently was New York state essentially settling for pennies on the dollar. I mean, it's a lot of money, but it wasn't the billions they were trying to go after this company for. They, it was for pennies on the dollar to settle their claim as a, you know, basically as a, in a bankruptcy court. But it hmm. it didn't change anything because the Grand River and, and uh, Native Wholesale Supply had already changed how that that it was the nations bringing the product in, uh, in bringing it in, in in bond and then having it distributed to them rather than. And and I bring this up because. We are not taxable as native people, right? By by from from New York State standpoint, but if we form a company, that entity can be so nations aren't okay. taxable and native individuals aren't. But Grand River Enterprises, because it's because they had to, they, they're a company and 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 they do company uh, business on the Canadian side, they they are a taxable entity. So they had to kind of change how they did business because they had to. Put the burden on the non-taxable entities, which are the nations and uh, and the native individuals. Okay, all right. It's all. It's awkward. It's, 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 it's awkward. a lot of what people don't understand, and, and I'm one of the few people who really can explain it because I obviously I, I follow all of this stuff. Yeah, but it's important, right? And I like, even though it is sort of complicated, I do think it's important because it is important to see that the you know the squeeze is still there, right? The squeeze is always there. Um, I, yeah, I, wanted, I mean, why why shouldn't we be able to be non-taxable if we if even if we form a, a nation charter and, and honestly I think um, uh, I think Grand River and and uh, uh, Native Wholesale Supply I think they they incorporated as Sack and Fox corporations to try to you know avoid this but but the mm-hmm. state was able to you know for say no we can t- we can tax a corporation no matter where it's incorporated yeah. so yeah there's no reason that we sh- we shouldn't be able to maintain our tax status b- just because we organize because well, we aren't necessarily trying to limit liability like w- most people do when they form a corporation it's it's almost impossible to do business if you don't have some sort of you know corporate structure yeah yeah and then, of course, once you try to do that, that's when, uh, you know, the, the hammer comes down. Let me ask while, exactly. while we have you, because we only have a couple more minutes, but on the topic of Kathy Hochul, uh, she had a debate last night with challenger Lee Zeldin. He's a Republican. Uh, we, of course, have spoken about Hochul and uh, using, you know, freezing Seneca Nation's bank accounts to force them to pay millions of dollars in gaming taxes that the nation was still uh, quite legitimately contesting that it owed, and then sending that money straight into a company that employs her husband, which is nice. pretty funny. Um, well, let me, let me clear that up, though. It, it, she didn't actually give it to the company that employs her husband. She gave it to a billionaire who owns the Buffalo Bills to build a stadium, but they contract with the company that her husband uh, is is a principal in. Yes, so, yes. So it was a little more indirect than that. So I 
don't want to misrepresent that uh, that Bill Hochul doesn't necessarily work directly for um, uh, for Terry Pagula, but he works for Delaware North, which is has gaming contracts and state contracts all mm-hmm. over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also had the the vendors uh, license or the vendors uh, contract for the uh, the Bill Stadium. I mean, do you think who who wins this governor's race? Does it make make much difference for tribal nations in New York? Do you have a you know do do you have a preference in this race? Uh, I think Zeldin's terrible. Um, <laughs> I know a bunch of other levels, but that doesn't make me like Kathy Hochul any better. Now we. You know, I always say, you know, the right never had a monopoly on racism. We have we've experienced terrible treatment at the hands of uh, Andrew Cuomo and Kathy Hochul. So neither party has ever. I mean, look, Zeldin, even as he went after Hochul over the over the stadium deal, never even dignified um, the fact that she screwed the Senecas for the money of the most of the money that he was talking about. So, yeah, yeah, he he had. And and look, I know he's a Trumper, and Trump hated Native people. He you know he testified in in front of Congress because he was he, he got his butt uh, kicked uh, in the gaming industry and blamed it all on uh, on the dis- the unfair advantage that Native people had. Yeah, right. because we always have so much so many advantages over white people. Right. Um, so no, I mean, I think Zeldin is terrible. Uh, I, I also don't think that uh, that Zeldin's going to win. I know they say the polls are tightening, but I mean, I think it's Democrats are two to one over Republicans. Although I think the independents um, are a little bit harder to take their temperature. So, but I, I watch all this stuff. But certainly, um, I don't vote in uh, in in state or national elections. I'm I, I don't want to submit myself to that. I mean, to me, that's almost like voluntary uh, assimilation for me to participate in the system. But but mm-hmm. I, I certainly do watch it. I'm I'm a student of it. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. John Kane, great to talk to you. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Uh, tell our listeners where they can go to find Let's Talk Native and Resistance Radio. Uh, Let's Talk Native and Resistance Radio are both put up as podcasts. So you can just uh, search Let's Talk Native with John Kane or Resistance Radio with John Kane, and you can find it. But we also air Resistance Radio on uh, WPFW in Washington, D.C. and on WBAI in New York City. So you can you can find us there. And uh, we never run out of topics because there's always something that's either completely ironic uh, with, with how other people are treated or something that, that we're being uh, you know, confronted with directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, kind of like U.S. foreign policy, too. <laughs> it's, it's sure. Mirror, mirror <laughs> yeah. images. All right. Thanks, John. I'm sure we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. We've only got a couple of minutes left. Yeah, and, funny. Uh, the day I, flew. Yeah, I wanted to note that um, today, one of the bigger unions uh, that is voting on this tentative agreement between rail companies and rail unions uh, is suppo- the results are supposed to be in for the Brotherhood of Railroad Single Signalmen. Uh, it's the it has six percent of the overall coalition yeah. that this deal was struck between, uh, and so we will we will find out what that is. Uh, at some point today, I don't. I didn't have time to scour Twitter to see if we'd gotten actual results yet. You know, between the 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 possibility of a of a rail strike and inflation and the energy uh, crisis and interest rates, what else could go worse for Joe Biden two weeks before the midterm elections? Yeah. It is. Uh, I mean, I could think of some things, but I'm scrolling here now to see if uh, if there have been any results yet. But I don't think so. We'll have to take a look tomorrow. Yeah. 
Uh, another thing that I think we're probably going to talk about tomorrow is this story. We didn't get a chance to chat about it, but a growing number of Republicans saying Trump is actually not going to be their nominee. Yeah, there was an interesting piece uh, yesterday or the day before in the New York Times saying that other Republicans um, are tired of waiting. Mm-hmm. And so they, nobody has actually set up a, a campaign um, structure yet, but they have begun making strategic hires, people who would be able to step out of whatever super PAC they happen to be involved with right now and move into a campaign in a leadership position. More importantly, well, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, yes, but all these people quoted here are formers. Yes. Former Speaker Paul Ryan, former Governor Jeb Bush. They have nothing to lose. Yeah. Former Vice President Mike Pence, Liz Cheney, everyone who's out doesn't want Trump. What are the people who are in want? Well, and, and that's what I'm talking about is the people who are in. They are um, they are associating themselves with mega donors. There's going to be a big mega donor conference coming up in the next week or so in Las Vegas um, that's specific to Jewish money in the United States. Interesting. Yeah, it's going to be led by right, Sheldon Nielsen's uh, <laughs> no, right, widow. Yeah. There's a lot going on. Yeah, we, maybe we'll get into this more tomorrow. That's all we got time for today. Thanks to everybody who joined us. Thanks to everyone uh, who produces it here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Woody, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>